From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Well, as mentioned, this season we plan to give you a look at some of the other podcasts produced at Notre Dame. Today, we're highlighting a show called Tech Talks. That's T-E-C, and it stands for Technology Ethics Center. It's hosted by Kirsten Martin, who is the William P. and Hazel B. White Director of the Technology Ethics Center at Notre Dame. I sat down with Professor Martin to hear a bit about the center and how it's helping to shape the future of our relationship with tech. At the end of our brief conversation, we'll play an episode from Tech Talks dealing with social media addiction. Kirsten Martin, Director of the Technology Ethics Center, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. So when I hear the term Technology Ethics Center, I think of a place that I sort of intuitively know is needed, but I don't go much deeper than that. Can you help me put a finer point on it? What what is the story of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center? So the uh, the ND Tech, or the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, is at what's is at the university level. And so we report up to the provost and we do academic initiatives across the university. So sometimes we have hiring initiatives where we'll hire people in tech ethics across the university. So in, I'm in from a Mendoza College of Business. We have people in Keough, people in Arts and Letters. We try hiring in engineering and we people from different disciplines that are focused on tech ethics. We have a minor, we have student interest groups at the graduate and undergraduate level where we'll talk about or read tech ethics material from across different disciplines and then discuss it within their own discipline. So people from law school, people from PhD and computer science all get together and have lunch and discuss those things. Um, we host postdocs um, in tech ethics from across different fields. Um, the main idea is that we try to bring together students and faculty and visitors who are interested in tech ethics from their discipline and just talk about the ideas around tech ethics from whatever discipline they come, if that makes sense. So it's I was just talking to one of the postdocs and who's in, a philosopher, and we were talking about how much how fruitful it is to talk to people across different disciplines because it really makes you just talk about the phenomenon or the thing that you're interested in without getting into the jargon of your own discipline. So you it's really very fruitful and generative to do that. And so that's what we do for the University of Notre Dame. Gotcha. Okay. So there's a breadth and a depth there that is enormous. So I guess, help me understand, how do you know where to start? And I guess I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, technology is something that I think most people for a long time figured, this is something that improves our lives. And, and maybe in the last couple of decades, I guess people have started to re-examine that premise wholesale. So, so how do you know where to start in terms of what you focus on? Um, yeah, it's uh, that's a good question about like how do I get my project ideas. I would say that a lot of the things that people in this area write about are a lot driven by like things that you see. Like so, you'll see an AI program being used in a weird way and try to understand why. So it's a little bit more phenomenologically driven, like the, what's going on in the world than some other excuse me fields. Um, we also like when we go to conferences, you'll hear other people's take on a certain thing that's going on in the world, like a hiring algorithm and think, 
I usually think, well, that's just not quite right. And then I'll think, well, how would I answer that differently or something along those lines? So I, but that's a good question because there's a lot going on. People tend to focus in one area. Like I did a lot of work in privacy. Um, other people really focus on like human resources and HR and then like, sorry, HR and AI. Um, other people focus on like their own computer science. They're going to focus on a certain type of modeling. So there's different ways that people focus within the broader area, but a lot of it is driven by what you see going on. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think the tech industry has done a really good job of focusing on innovation as like the reason to be um, similar, I would say to the steel industry in the seventies and the eighties focused on like the infrastructure of America or the car industry famously was kind of like, you know, what's good for GM is good for the United States. Um, probably meant to say vice versa, but you know, I think that the big tech industry has done a, a good job similar to those other industries of making us um, see the utility of what they've offering us to the infrastructure, what's good for America. But similarly with those other industries, by going on so long without much critique, they've run into problems. So the automobile industry ran into problems with safety. You know, they fought it for years and said, there's no way to make a safe car um, or that we don't care about safety. Um, and the steel industry polluted like crazy um, for years until we had the EPA. So I, I, in that way, it's very similar into the big tech industry into kind of saying that they're all about innovation and getting us to focus on innovation. You just mentioned two case studies there very briefly, automobile and, and the steel industry, but you actually have a book that is full of case studies in it, um, just released over the summer. Tell me about that, and, and what is it about our current moment in time that kind of made you realize, yeah, this is the time to bring all of this together in, in one volume? Mainly it was in designing this class that I was teaching for Mendoza for this college of business on the ethics of data and analytics. And I had so much fun, I guess, in, in designing the course. And like, if people were gonna teach the ethics of data analytics, like what should they teach? Like what are the core topics that you need to know in this space or in this area? And then, um, and I teach using the case method. So we open every class with an actual case from either something that's written for a class discussion or a case from like a newspaper article around being wrongfully accused of committing a crime or that we use a Stanford algorithm to, you know, allocate vaccines, you know, something that actually occurred and then talk about like the theory that goes with that, like so surveillance or privacy or um, bias in AI or something along those lines. And so part that was mainly driven by the way that I teach and the and me thinking about like, what do people need to know in this area? If another faculty member who wanted to teach ethics and data analytics wanted to teach in this area, what, what should they be teaching? Like, what are the certain areas? Um, because it is becoming, a, data analytics is one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing right. uh, major across universities. And so we need to be teaching them the ethics of data analytics. You also host a podcast. You're a guest right now, but you also host a podcast. It's called Tech Talks. Uh, tell me about that. What do you look to do with that show? I, I love doing that show because it really forces me to read the paper. So what we, what I do is I take a very one paper by an author across any discipline focused on tech ethics, and we try to make that paper very accessible to a broader audience. So like it should be something that someone who's not an academic and not at all familiar 
with the research in that one little narrow defined area and talk about it in very as plain a language as we can to say kind of like, what was the point of this article? Why is it interesting? And what are kind of the practical implications of this? Um, mainly because there's so much interesting work going on in tech ethics and the really interesting work in tech ethics really is, you know, it's, it should be interesting to a computer scientist and a legal scholar and a business person. And so the idea is to take one idea make it broadly accessible to like a broader audience and talk in really plain language about something that's usually pretty um, nuanced and specific within academia, but to try to make the, try to make the idea more accessible to a broader audience. It's usually only about like 20 or 25 minutes. We're going to lead into an episode right now on social media addiction. I listened to it and your guest has a really fascinating analogy that he kind of, or I guess a metaphor um, using coffee uh, as, as a metaphor for, for social media addiction. Tell us what we should know about this episode. So this is uh, my a colleague, a friend of mine, Vic, who's at GW University. And um, he does some, he's a philosopher and he does some really interesting work in business school and business ethics around tech ethics. And this paper in particular is his take on why, why we think social media addiction is wrong. So that might seem like we should think it's wrong, but you really have to think about like, why is this wrong as opposed to other, we, we call them sin industries in business schools sometimes like alcohol or tobacco or gambling, you know, we don't outlaw those, you know, we kind of let people decide what they want to do with those industries. And so what is it about social media addiction that makes it different from other industries where we think that it might be an addictive product? And I think he really does I love the piece because he really does an interesting job of trying to get to the nut of why this is different in this situation by, you know, kind of the using of your data against you and in in which is kind of a dignitary harm. So he does a great job of explaining it. Right. Well, we're going to lead into that right now. But Kirsten Martin, thank you for joining us on Notre Dame Stories. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, discovery in tech ethics. And today, I'm so happy to be joined by Vikram Bhargava. Vic is an assistant professor of strategic management and public policy at the George Washington University School of Business. Vic's research centers around the distinctive ethics and policy issues that technology gives rise to in an organizational context. In the series, our goal is to take one article, idea, or case and examine the larger implications for the field of tech ethics like at large, including what someone who, for example, is hanging out in North Carolina, reading hard copies of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times should know about the idea, just as an example. It happens to me my father that still reads hard copies of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And today I wanted to take a deeper dive into that article you had with uh, Manuel Velasquez, The Ethics of the Attention Economy, The Problem of Social Media Addiction. I just so enjoyed this idea when I first saw it presented and then when I saw it in print. And I just thought you did like such an interesting job of figuring out why it feels kind of more wrong that these companies get users addicted to their product. Um, and so when we see with the Facebook papers, right, like this continuing more evidence of this issue around social media and user engagement as the optimized um, outcome. And I thought, could you say a little bit more about one, I guess, how the wrongs are similar to other industries that we're used to thinking of, like sin industries of like tobacco or gambling, but then also 
like what's more wrong, if that makes sense. Like what's the more wronger thing that's going on here? Th- thanks for having me. First of all, you know, I, I am excited to be here and you're, you're actually get to the question that inspired me in a lot of ways, which is that, look, we, we've had businesses that have sold addictive products for decades now, longer. Even. Mm-hmm. And it's not enough, for example, to say, well, look, here's a product that's harmful because there are lots of things that are harmful that might not raise unique issues. So the question that I'm interested in is, well, what if it all is unique or distinctive about social media companies addicting their users? And there are a lot of ways in which social media companies resemble other more familiar sort of sin, industries, so to speak, and there are ways in which they're different. So I wouldn't quite put it as they are worse than these familiar addictive products, let's say cigarettes or, or alcohol or mm-hmm. even, even harder drugs, but rather that they raise certain issues, ethical issues that were not seen with these other kinds of products. Mm-hmm. So to, to give you an example of this, you know, I, I just got a cup of coffee this morning at Starbucks. And let's suppose that I, I finished drinking this cup of coffee at the coffee shop and I, and I threw it away. Now, I'm using this example that I'm going to build on here to illustrate a unique component of social media, which is called adaptive algorithms, which is the mm-hmm. idea that the more you use the platform, the more the platform itself adapts to you, which gets you to use it more. And then this gives it more data and this further adapts to you. So it's a tailoring process to the individual. So now returning to the coffee example. So, you know, let's say I finish up my cup of coffee. I toss it out at the coffee shop and unbeknownst to me, they go in the trash can, they grab my cup of coffee, seal it up in a Ziploc bag and send it off to the regional lab for processing to figure out a little bit more about the biological attributes that incline me toward addiction. So then they sort of, mildly tweak their coffee recipe to make it slightly more addictive the next day when I come Mm. in to have coffee. So again, I come in to have coffee. I finish my cup of coffee, slightly more addictive. Again, I throw it away. And then again, they seal it up in a Ziploc bag and they send it off to a lab for processing. Now this process happens over and over and over and over until let's say a few weeks later, I come back to the coffee shop and now I'm given a highly addictive cup of coffee. And not only that, they used me against myself. They sort of implicated Mm -hmm. me in the very process of addicting myself. So it's something like, not only are we going to do this bad thing to you, we're going to get you to help us do this bad thing to yourself. Right, 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 right. right. Now, a key point here is I was aware at the front end that caffeine has some mildly addictive potential, right? So I might have even been aware of that, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that I endorsed being given a highly addictive cup of coffee, nor being used in that very process. So, you know, a lot of times people might point out, well, aren't users sort of consenting to this and their agreement? Well, you know, the, the scope of what they're consenting to is relevant in a lot of ways, right? The social media that we signed up for at the outset, Facebook was a very, very different product at the outset than it is right, right. now. So, you know, this example is a way in which You know, you might think, well, I still don't see why this is different from cigarettes. Isn't it the case that with cigarettes, the more you use cigarettes, the more addicted you become? Now, it is true that the more you use a given product, the more addicted you become to it. But that's not the point I'm making here. The point, rather, is that 
the more you use social media, the more addictive it becomes. So it becomes, right. it's, it, it would be like a cigarette that each time you smoke the cigarette, the cigarette itself increased in nicotine content and right. you help them do that. So that's right. way in which I think, uh, that's one way. I think there's, there are other ways in which right. uh, social media addiction is, is unique, but you know, that is, that is a salient way, I think. I love it. And so like to take the cigarette example, it'd be like if it was monitoring on each of your cigarettes, but they don't tell you this because they're not, you still buy the same pack of cigarettes. It's Vic's pack of cigarettes. It looks on the outside, like the same pack of cigarettes. It's just that the actual nicotine amount is now tailored to you um, to get you to want more. Now, maybe you need a hit early. And so the rush is earlier in the cigarette versus someone else that needs the hit later. And the cigarette, they put the nicotine way at the end or something along those lines. But it's this tailoring based on your input. And but the product looks the same. Like for all you know, you're just getting the same cigarette over and over again. And yet they're kind of using your own information to get you to, to, for you to have a negative effect in that's some right. ways. That's yeah. So, so, you know, it, it's something like they are of course harming you in doing this, but there's an added insult to the harm of using you against yourself. Right. It's something, you know, this is an entirely different degree example, of course, but it's something like not just murdering somebody, but getting the person you're about to murder to dig their own grave before you do that. Right. 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 Yeah. And in the, I think you call it the insult to injury argument in the that's paper, right? right? It's right. demeaning in a certain way, in, right. a, in a way that's different than just addiction, um, addictive products or harmful products that may hurt you. But we, you kind of know the, what's going on with cigarettes and right. you understand what the, you know, with the warning labels. But this kind of like adding insult to injury is a, a level of demeaning to use your own information to further addict you, which I thought was kind of captured why we, you know, why do we think it's wronger, you know, more wrong? Why do we have this visceral reaction to this? And I was like, that's it. You know, why, how are they, um, it is different in a way. Right. Um, You know, like in a lot of ways, I think people have sort of correctly accused me of having an understated public policy response that I defend in the paper itself. Right. You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't call for a heavy handed regulatory response in the paper in part not because I don't think it's an order, but in part because I think there's a lot more empirical study that's required, both of mm-hmm. the very phenomena of social media addiction, but also, you know, I think anytime you you want to legislate or regulate something, there are important empirical questions that need to be addressed, right? And I, right. I of course, didn't have the, you know, that they haven't been addressed yet. Uh, right. There is a way in which, even with, you know, a lot of times what people will say, how is it that this is addictive with cigarettes or heroin? This is something that's affecting your body directly. But Mm -hmm. the the kind of key point is that there's nothing, you know, special about the fact that it's affecting your body. The important thing is certain brain changes and brain changes can be affected through the body or otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. You have certain responses, dopamine dopamine responses and, and other kinds of responses, whether or not it enters our body through, you know, a physical injection, and we can have psychological responses to this as well. This is why, you know, gambling is widely regarded to be an addiction now. Now, an important way in which even on slot machines, which people often draw a parallel to now with social media, with slot machines, they're not, at least in the United States, legally permitted to change the odds on you while you are playing. Right. There's no such issues with social media, for example. Right. Right. Let's say they sense that you're probably going to log off. They can just hit you with the exact kind of content that would prevent that at that point. 
with no issue. Right. So. And I suppose the other thing gets to the exploitation argument that you make. We can avoid, I mean, I, I think someone who's addicted to gambling would say there's always opportunities to gamble on like whether a light turns red before a certain time. So putting that aside, there aren't slot machines everywhere and you can avoid cigarettes even now more than ever, which gets to something else that's kind of different about social media, right? Than other um, addictive industries that you've mentioned. That's right. So I think there's a sense in which actually in philosophical discussions of exploitation, the relationship with, between a drug dealer and addict is often given as an example of exploitation. This is a sort of garden variety way in which, you know, they could jack up the price. This person is desperate, so to speak. Right. Now there's a way in which the kind of exploitation that's going on with social media addiction is much more invidious for the very reasons that you, that you sort of sketch, which is that Although, you know, I, I don't mean to suggest that it's easy for an addict to quit cigarettes or to quit alcohol. It is, of course, a challenge. But rather, the point is that one can get on fairly successfully in contemporary life without ever smoking cigarettes, right? A little more difficult with alcohol, but even that, it doesn't mm-hmm. really hinder too many professional social opportunities, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about the case of teens, for example, you know, maybe there's going to be teens who sort of sneak into their parents' alcohol cabinet or, mm-hmm. you know, take a puff of a cigarette while they're at a, at a party. But nothing bad would happen if they did not do that until they were, right. let's say, graduated from college or graduated from high school. Right. There's something different in the case of social media, which is that every college class that I've taught right now, so these are, you know, Gen Z students, there's always at least 10% or so of them who have had history teachers who've given assignments such as make a Twitter profile for this historical figure. And they're, you know, important in order to succeed on school assignments in a lot of ways, it requires being a part of social media. Right. And so it's not, you know, these deviant teens, it's the very, you know, the ideal academically socially successful teens in a lot of ways have legitimate grounds to be on social media. And, you know, it's not just children. I mean, I think to, these days, there are more and more politicians who are announcing, you know, global governance decisions, public policy decisions. And if you want right. to be a sort of participant in the democratic process, in a lot of ways, you need to be attuned to this on social media. So right. if you want to be, let's say, a part of there are plenty of, for example, job search websites that require you to log in with the social media platform, dating apps, et cetera. So there are a lot of right. different social goods that either require you to join using a social media platform or it's the sort of most straightforward way to do so. So the way in which this is more, you know, the exploitation is more invidious is that there are legitimate grounds for why we need to be on the internet more generally and also even plausibly on social media in particular, such that Mm -hmm. even if you're not addicted yet, it's just they have innumerable opportunities to get you, so to speak. Right, right. And this is in a lot of ways different, right? There, we, we wouldn't lose out on much if we never smoked cigarettes in our lives. But right. arguably, I mean, certainly with internet in contemporary life, and you might correctly say, well, look, the internet is not the same as social media. But the trouble is, you know, we know from the research on environmental cues, you're just one step away. It's like, right. you know, you can go to a bar as an alcoholic and have alcohol right. there. But it's the environmental cues make it all the more difficult. Right. And, uh, you know, this is a sort of perpetual challenge, basically, for for social media, given that there are a lot of legitimate uses of that of it. Right. 
Yeah. And especially, I mean, this was written, if I remember, I mean, I saw it presented before the pandemic, but it, it was written and published before the pandemic, right. which social media has only become more important, especially for teens and young adults um, since the pandemic, because that's the only way that they actually are socially interacting. So it's, it was actually written before that, but you could even make a stronger argument now in many ways with the reliance on people being remote. And now that they're used to it, it's just so much easier for them to interact that way. Um, and they have friends from long distances. So right. it's kind of become even more normal. And so, well, so we're in a, you and I are in business school. So of course the first question is why can't the market just fix this? And I think you have a great answer for that, that um, there's reasons why the market can't fix it, you know, because that's what we're supposed to ask, right? Like why, what's the market force that could actually get this thing to move or how, what's that fix? And so I think your point is really it, there's not much incentive right now around um, the market to push, um, to not focus on engagement, right? Right. So there's a way in which right now the debate around social media addiction and not just addiction, but a, a bunch of the different woes associated with social media, there are people who sort of say, well, you know, there are two options here. You know, we either get rid of this attention economy business model in general mm -hmm. and get rid of social media or, or, you know, if we have social media, just no attention economy, you know, business model or, right. you know, something like we just have to get get rid of social media. And and I don't I think there is an intermediate position right. in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the NFTs will all fix it. That's <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I really like this paper. I think I mean, what I like about it is it kind of. I mean, it's a, it's a microcosm of the wrongs of using your data against you. And this happens in other areas and other places where people are using um, someone's, an individual's own data, but not in their interest. And I thought that this was like the way the argumentation went in the paper. First of all, it's really clear. And then also, I just like how it really encapsulated this idea of this adding insult to injury of using your own data against you, which really resonated of kind of saying, yes, that's, that's what feels more wrong. You know, like that's the, that's the thing. Thank you. Um, yeah. And, and actually, you know, that point that you mentioned is actually, I think, directly related to this incentive structure. The trouble right now is that, of course, social media has played a role in important social, positive social movements, Arab Spring and so on. So I right. don't mean to suggest there haven't been positives associated with it. There is a reasonable challenge. Some people say, well, look, we've had attention economy business models before. Television and radio are attention economy business models, right? As the journalism. Yep. Yep. So there is a real challenge of, well, what's 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 right. what's going on here? And I think there is an important difference. And this is that. So as I see it, the way forward, you know, this is a sort of hasty sketch, is that if social media companies want to continue on the attention economy business model then I think that the tailoring needs to be limited. It shouldn't be hyper-tailored mm. to the individual. If they want to continue to tailor it to the individual, then I think it should be on a membership model, right? So, Oh, interesting. So I sort right. of- Because it's, the, it's exacerbating. Like, so the one, the attention economy model of I get, you get paid based on engagement. So I need to keep you on longer. Right. Dovetailing with exactly. this insult to injury- Adapt, adaptation of the engagement of like kind of how you actually are affected by the social media, that that's just, it's like a, a tornado. It's just making it worse. It's like two streams coming together. And so I see what you're saying. And so you, you can do one, but not both. You know right. what I mean? So exactly. pick, pick your poison is, is one way to moderate right. the, the kind of evils that come with right. the wrongness that comes with both. That's, that's, that's super right. interesting. So as like a slogan, 
if attention economy, then no tailoring. If tail, right. no attention economy. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. I mean, I think what's interesting about that is you could see that a lot of different places. I mean, that's what I liked about the paper is like, it's a very specific paper on one area, but you can see it with the attention economy and adaptive architecture as kind of one of those, like constantly and the use of consumers data against them as this constant problem that we have, you know, so it's kind of a, it's, it's not just um, social media addiction. You can take these ideas and put them onto other things. So, yeah, I, I, well, I'm always excited to hear your stuff, but like, so tell me, I, I want to wrap up just because I know you are super busy and, but who, who are you paying attention to right now in tech ethics? Or are you kind of look forward to hearing what they write about? I know there's tons of people in this space. It's kind of an area where you can just highlight a few people that we should be watching out for. That's right. So you are right that, you know, there are tons of new, new people, new talent coming into the space. And there are, you know, a host of different issues to address. I think one of the the papers, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, this is a paper and also a book, is by uh, a political theorist, Sonu Beatty, up at Dartmouth. On oh yeah, he's great. On uh, yeah, he and he has a book and a paper. The book is entitled "Private Racism," and he has a paper about the role of race-based filters in dating app algorithms. And you know, a lot of the dating apps right now they offer various different race-based filters where you can filter out the prospective romantic or sexual partners by race. And he explores right. the ethics of and law of this in a, in a really fascinating, clear way. And I think it is, you know, it's a topic that affects huge chunks of our students, huge chunks of the population. This is how people are dating right now. It's a core part right. of contemporary life. And in a lot of ways, I think people have sort of regarded this aspect of our life as sort of insulated from the possibility of bigoted preferences. And so, right. and it raises, I think, fascinating, challenging questions that, you know, in some cases, uncomfortable ones, but I think yeah. it does it in all the right ways. So I think Sonu Beatty's work on, on, on this topic of private racism, I think is really quite excellent. Yeah, that's, that's a great suggestion. He's, um he's great. So thank you. Well, Gosh, I, well, let me know when you have another thing out. I always watch for it. And I know we always, we see each other when we do our workshops together. So I always am keeping track of what's going on. So I really, I can't thank you enough for coming and kind of just doing a little bit of a deep dive on one idea just to make it kind of broad for the entire tech ethics community. So I really appreciate you taking your time out of your day, Vic. And um, thanks so much. And I'll see you soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.